listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. If you have your Bibles uh, this morning, uh, I invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, and while you are turning there, a couple of things, just thoughts. We spent the last uh, few weeks talking about going through our foundations um, here at Warren Community Church, just defining kind of a, a just a reminder of who we are. These foundations are the things that, that, that drive us and push us to the vision and the mission of our church. And so I hope through the last several weeks of Pastor Ken and I uh, being able to preach through these foundations, it has helped you reconnect uh, with, with what Warren Community Church is all about and what it was founded on 22-plus uh, years ago uh, in the home of uh, Pastor Ken and, and Miss Jan. And, and so we think about these, and, and I love all of them, worship, fellowship, fellowship discipleship, ministry, missions, uh, all these things are so amazing. And watching this church kind of walk those out uh, in life, personally, privately, but also as a corporate body, is very exciting. Uh, just last Sunday night, uh, we had 18 people go down to Calvary Rescue Mission and just serve those men there. Uh, not only food, but I looked up one time and we had somebody from Warren at every table sitting there engaging those guys, sharing the gospel with them, just sharing life with them. And so um, as a pastor, it's, it's amazing to serve and be part of such a church. And, um, and so today... I'm going to be talking about the thing that fuels all that, and that's prayer. Uh, without prayer, uh, none of us could do what we, we do, and, and it is the driving force of the power to say, this is, this is who we are, and this is how we accomplish what we do. So with prayer, uh, I know all of us would agree um, in, in voice, but just kind of a thought in your life, just in practice about prayer being the most important piece or part of our Christian journey. I mean, if you think about prayer, it's the way we commune with God, uh, talk to Him as a friend, talk to Him as a father, uh, just have conversation with Him. But it's also how we have the power uh, to live the life of a Christian and serve Him and glorify His name through what He's called us to do. This is where the power comes from. But it's also where we go to whenever we have needs and, and we, we're struggling and we, we have that. And I hope your prayer life is not just one of need. I pray that it's one of communion uh, with the Lord and just spending time with Him. So whenever that need arises, it just comes natural that that would be your first turning to and not your last. Uh, but just walking uh, with Him. I love what D.L. Mooney said. It's in your notes uh, those who have left the deepest impression on the sin-cursed earth have been men and women of prayer. And I believe that. One of the greatest impacts in my life, personally, uh, when I was at Mid-America in seminary, I had a professor named Dr. Floyd. And Dr. Floyd was a man of prayer. His life, you've heard stories, I'm sure, if you've ever really paid much attention to church history, of Jonathan Edwards. You know, it talks often about he's preached the famous message, sin in the hands of an angry God. 
Jonathan Edwards was not known to be a great orator. He was not known uh, to be this great uh, speaker. He was monotone, and he uh, was very much, I guess it's nearsighted. He had to hold his paper right in front of his face. But it is said of Jonathan Edwards that he spent so much time in fervent prayer with the Lord that when he walked into the sanctuary of the church that people would fall on the ground in repentance because of the presence of God on his life. And I had a professor in school that was like that. Um, he was not the greatest preacher uh, at Mid-America, but he was a man of prayer. And every time I went to him, uh, just talking with him, uh, he was a guy that discipled me. It was always, Matthew, let's pray first. Let's leave it with the Lord and let's not touch it. Let's let him work. And he taught me a lot about prayer. And it's just amazing that, that through my life, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm a man of prayer like he was because it's the one place in my life, and I think most of us would agree we struggle with the most. Uh, but it's also the greatest place for us to be. It's in, a, in, a, in a, a posture of prayer to our Lord. And, and what I want to talk about today is, is Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, there are nine recorded prayers uh, so we know Nehemiah was a man of prayer. We know that he went to the Lord first. But just a background on him before we jump in is, is he was a, a trusted official. I, I got to thinking about it even this morning. He was a cupbearer, and that's what he says at the end of 11. And it, you know, when you read about him and all, it talks about he's this amazing, he's a trusted uh, person in, in, the, in the court of King Artaxerxes of Persia. And I got to thinking, man, I don't know how trust... I, I mean, to be a cupbearer means you're the last line of defense. I mean, if you take a drink of something bad and it kills you, I mean, I don't know if you're high position or not. I don't, it can be a low position to me. But he was trusted. He was a man that the king trusted. And he had a very high position. And what's amazing with that is he was basically a slave. Uh, he was brought there... Um, in slavery, and he was a, a Jewish man in the court of a king, the king of Persia. And God used him in a mighty way, just as he did Daniel, when Daniel was, was enslaved. And so he was a man of prayer, and I love it because the first place he turned was to God. It wasn't the last resort, it was the resort. And uh, I want us to read uh, 1 through 11, and then kind of jump into to kind of what we can learn from this prayer, and hopefully apply that to our life. And some of these words at the front, if I mess them up, you don't really even know it. So we'll just say it with confidence. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, uh, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah. And I asked him them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are burned. Y'all, excuse me, have kind of a cold. I don't want to sniffle too loud and gross all y'all out, but anyway. And so it was, and I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please 
Let your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of your servants, and confess, oh, I said it twice, the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both fathers, my father's house, and I have sinned. Excuse me, I am so sorry. We have acted corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he throws this in there, for I was a cupbearer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you, and God, I'm so thankful, Lord, today for just who you are. God, I'm thankful that through your son, Jesus, and his death on the cross, God, we are reminded in Hebrews that we can approach your throne boldly. God, what a privilege it is that every man, woman, boy, and girl sitting in this room today and listening can actually come into the presence of the creator of all things. God, let us never count that short. Let us never come flippantly. Let us realize the who uh, we are coming before. God, I'm thankful that you simply tell us in your word that we have not because we ask not. God, we can bring all of our supplications to you. Lord, I'm glad that Jesus, speaking with the disciples, teaches us how to pray and how to approach you. So God, today I pray that in this room and in the life of Warren Community Church, that God would not be just a church of missions and ministry and God fellowship, discipleship, and worship, but that we are marked as a church of prayer. God, because we know that's how everything else operates. So God, help us today as we walk through this time. And Lord, we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to be quoting a couple of things from uh, War Room, mainly from Miss Clara uh, today. One of the things that she says that I love in that movie is to win any battle, you've got to have the right strategy and resources because victories don't come by accident. You have to be intentional in your prayer life. To win victory. So the first thing I want us to think about this morning out of this passage is the posture of prayer. And notice what happens in, in verse 2. He kind of gives this introduction in verse 2. He says that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with the men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived their captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in the great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. 
And then notice this, so it was when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When I heard what was going on, it, it moved him in such a way that he sat down and he wept and he mourned, the Bible says, for many days. And he was fasting and he was praying. And I think some of the things that we need to really grasp when it's, we're thinking about prayer is the idea of coming to God in the right posture. It's coming to him in the, in the right, with the right attitude and being careful not to reduce God down to man or try to elevate man up to God. We have to come before him realizing, recognizing that we are not approaching just any person. We are approaching the king of all kings. And even in history, you just didn't walk into the, 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 the throne room or the, uh, the throne of a king. Most of the times you had to be summons. And if you came outside of that summons, you would most of the times die. But through what Jesus did, we have been summoned to come into the throne room of God based on what Hebrews tells us to come boldly. But we still have to remember who it is we're approaching. I remember being in seminary in Dr. Floyd's class, and one day we were just talking about God. And I remember this guy sat beside me who is from another country, and I don't know that he fully understood uh, just some of the ideas in the reverence of God, but he approach to kind of use a term, man, I can't wait to heaven to hang out with my dude. And man, listen, I was sitting beside him, and the wrath that was coming from Dr. Floyd on this guy because he approached, said, use the idea of God as a dude. But I'm afraid sometimes that's the mentality of the church and the culture today is that God's just another person. But the way we approach him, we have to realize that, that he is the king. And we have to uh, approach him when we come in his presence with humility. Nehemiah said when he asked about going to Jerusalem and when he heard, he said, I sat down and I, I mourned and I wept. That, that's a, a, a thing of humility and, and brokenness. And I believe there's something important about humility and brokenness in prayer as we approach the Lord. I believe that beauty, there is beauty and brokenness. And I believe there is acceptance and humility. I believe these are two things that are crucial to our prayers. So I just want to talk about both of them real quickly. Think about humility. Humility de defined is one, uh, a low estimate of oneself. I think in 2022, it's just real simple to say, you're not all that. And that's really what it means, is you're really not all that. And it's thinking of yourself... In that way, humility never exalts itself in the eyes of others. Humility is the total absence of pride. Humility takes the low seats. E.M. Bounds says this in his book on prayer. Humility is the indispensable requisite of prayer. So if you approach God with haughtiness, he's not going to listen. You have to come before him with humility. Humility is looking at God and His holiness and then evaluating your own life and going, Really, Lord, just the idea that I even can come into your presence is humbling to me because of who you are and because of who I am. Humility is recognizing that God gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. 
Humility is the publican beating on his chest, saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's humility. Humility is, is said, as I was reading this week, a farmer took his young son into the field, and they were looking at wheat. And he asked his son, he says, son, which one of these stalks of wheat do you think is the greatest stalk that's going to yield the most? And the young boy said, well, no doubt, Dad, it's the one that's standing straight up above all the others. And his dad said, you're wrong. It's the one that's bent over under its own weight. And how is that in the church so often? We can sometimes think that person that's standing the tallest is the one that God uses the most. I'm going to tell you, God uses and here's the one that has bent over of their own weight, recognizing that they're nothing without him. Dr. Adrian Rogers, one of the greatest modern Day preachers, maybe probably one of the greatest preachers of all time. In his life, and you can read this, early in his life when he was called to ministry, he was living down in Florida. And when God called him to preach, he said he went out on the football field of the school that was close by his house. And he said he, he was walking up and down that field and he was going, Lord, I have to be humbled in order to serve you. And so he's walking that, down that field, he's praying and he's calling out to God and he said, I recognize I still wasn't humble enough, so I knelt down in the field. And he said, I was down on my knees, and I was going, God, I have to be more humble for you to use me. And he said, it's like God spoke to him, said, Adrian, you're still not low enough. And he said, so I laid out prostrate in the, on the field, and he face buried in the, in the turf. And he says, God, is this low enough? And God said, Adrian, you're still not low enough. And he said, so I dug a hole. And I buried my face in the hole to where dirt was clogging up his nostrils. And God said, now I can use you. That's what humility is. Humility is one of the things that we have to have when we approach this amazing person that we call Father. And also brokenness. Notice what he said. He said, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. Here's the thing about brokenness is brokenness goes against our greatest enemy, which is pride, right? I mean, brokenness is one of those things that nobody really wants to do. I had a guy at a church that I formerly served at that come to me one day and says, I hate it, Pastor, when you're preaching about brokenness. I can't stand it because normally when you're preaching about brokenness, that means that God's going to do something tragic in my life. I said, well, no. I said, you can come before God broken on your own, or if you refuse to, God will break you. But brokenness is a gift. And when we recognize who it is we're talking to, it should do something to our hearts. It brings us to a place of just being broken. Nehemiah was broken over the news of his people, but he was also broken before God. And broken in spirit is opening the door to allow him to come in and work. That's why David in his prayer of repentance said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Brokenness, and you can hang on to this one. Brokenness is the road that leads to breakthrough. Being broken is something special. It's not always pleasant, but it is needful. And I love what Isaiah 61.3 says about how God uh, rewards brokenness. He said, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, 
So if you come before God broken, God is going to take those ashes and turn them into something beautiful. The oil of joy in the morning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And just a question this morning. How do you approach God? When you come before God, how do, is it that you approach him? Because I believe wholly that the posture of the heart matters. And I believe that, that you should invite, we should always invite the Lord. Lord, check my intentions. How am I approaching you? Where are you focused? And ultimately, what is the attitude and the posture of your heart when you come before him? Because Nehemiah came before him humble, and he came before him broken. I think the next thing is this. Our posture depends on our view of the person. If we don't have the right view of God, we're not going to approach him in the right way. So notice what he does in verse 5. He says, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Then he goes on in verse 10. It says, you have redeemed us by your great power and by your strong hand. And I just want to ask a question this morning. And you're welcome to answer this as loud as you want to. Is there anyone greater than God? No. There's no one greater. God himself makes that claim. He says, I've looked high, I've looked low, I've looked everywhere, and I can't find anyone equal to me. And so, God, there there is no one greater. So just for a moment, let's take into consideration who this person is that we're praying to. Just ponder on the one that sent his only son to save us so that we could be invited into his presence. Nehemiah is face down and utterly overwhelmed by who God is. And it's what Jesus says when he's teaching his disciples how to pray. When he's teaching them how to pray, they come to him and say, Oh, Lord, teach us how to pray. He didn't go, well, you know, you say all these really lofty words. He says these simple prayers, and I want to share it with you today and kind of break it down for you on just the idea of what even the first line is. So Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, this is how you do it. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Can I ask you a question? Is that true in your life? Is that true in my life that when I pray to him that I hallow his name? Because it's a big word. It's a big word with a lot of meaning to it. It means literally that it, it reads something like this. Our Father which art in heaven, esteemed to be your name. Our Father which art in heaven, valued be your name. Our Father which art in heaven, treasured be your name. Our Father who art in heaven, loved is your name. And then notice how that, that, that verse reflects back to his, his hallowed name. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, hallowed be your name. Your will be done because your name is hallowed, right? Give us this day because of who you are because your name is hallowed. And everything that goes on in this prayer is based off of what the first line is. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. How many of us oftentimes just stop... And before we go before the Lord, go, God, I value your name so much. God, not what you've done for me. 
God, not what you're going to do for me. Lord, not what I'm asking you to do for me. But God, whenever I think about your name, it brings me to a place of understanding that you are valued and you are treasured and you are esteemed. And God, there really is no other like you. And I get to come to you boldly as your child and lay everything at your feet, trusting that you, God, are going to do something far greater than I could ever imagine based on your name. This is the person that we pray to. When Isaiah saw the Lord, his response to the Lord was, Woe is me, for I am undone. When's the last time maybe you stopped and just kind of took a, a, a gaze at what Jesus is doing in your life and go, Whoa! God, the best I can do is bow before you because I am undone. What about Daniel? When Daniel prayed to the Lord, he addressed him as the great and dreadful Lord. When's the last time you went up to, on your knees or whatever how it is, sitting in your car, whatever it is, and go, Oh God, you are great and you are dreadful. Right? It's because Daniel esteemed Yahweh. He valued Jehovah. Moses simply, he didn't know what to do, to be honest with you. He's just all over the place. He started repenting. Think about all of these guys. I just want to ask you, when we take a step back and truly look at who we are encountering, it should change us. So just a question, how has seeing God affected you? When you read his word, when you come before him in worship, when you look around the room, when you take even a day as a young man is baptized, I mean, quoting John 3.16 in front of all of us with confidence. What does that do to us when we see Jesus moving and working in that way? Because he is the God that restores us. He's the God that guides us and reassures us. And he is the God that provides for us. And I simply want to tell you this morning, I don't know how you walked in this place. And I'm not sure what you need. I'm not sure where you are when it comes to your prayer life. But I want to tell you that the person of prayer tells us to call on him. He tells us to cast all of our cares on him. And he tells us to come to him. So, man, we have this amazing, dreadful, great, um, wonderful, strong, all-knowing, all-powerful God that simply says, come. So how you view him will definitely be how you approach him. So I would say today that if anything, let's get the right view of who God is so we'll approach him in the right way. The third thing about this prayer is the penitence of prayer. Notice what he said in 6. He says, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which he, we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have this idea in the church as a whole, but I really think in the Church of America, 
is that oftentimes when it comes to praying for this nation, we're like put the sins on other people. It's like, you know, that this party needs to get it right, and this party does this, and this person and this leader's doing this. Based on what I read through the entire scripture, is that there comes a time where you got to put yourself in that place and go, God, I have sinned and my people have sinned. And we have to confess the sins of the nation. We have to confess the sins of the church. We have to confess the sins of ourselves. And that's what he does. He understands that in this prayer that he's praying, it's not just going to God humbly. It's not just going to God and approaching him in the right way because of who he is. It's going to him and going, God, I know before we can go any further in this prayer that I have to ask you to forgive Israel. God, I have to ask you to forgive my father's house and myself. And how often do we approach God and go, God, the sins of the nation rest upon me. God, the sin of the church rests upon me. God, my father's house, I'm responsible. And Lord, ultimately it's me that's really the problem. See, we have so much pride that we only want to make sure that we confess what we, in our own eyes, have done wrong. But I believe if we want God to move, we got to get on our knees and say, God, it's us. And it has to start here. So notice what he does. He's keenly aware of the sins of the nation and of his own sin. But before he started asking for help, he wanted to get things right. And I believe Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 probably get that as good And as close as anything, where Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. It's not that God can't. It's not that God won't. It's that we have to go, God, it is us that is the problem. God is in heaven going, I want to reach you. I want to hear you. I want to move on your behalf. But until you can come along and you can confess and repent from the thing that separates us, I'm just going to wait. I think sometimes we just have to be willing to go, okay, God, it's us. And I firmly believe that the church of God will have to confess our own sins before there can be a great work among the Lord in our nation. Joel nails it. I mean, if you've never really studied and read the the minor prophets, try it because it's very impactful. But this is what Joel says. Joel said, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. That sounds really good, right? It's like, yeah, I can do that. But then he says this, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. See, the idea of repentance, and we all have it down. We have it down to where we know repentance is that we're walking this way towards sin, and repentance is turning away from that sin, but also not only turning away from that sin, but turning back to God. But what is our heart in that turning back? 
Is our heart just like, God, I did the formality. I did what repentance says. It's a 180. God, I have uh, metaphorically tore my clothes. God's going, I don't care about any of that until your heart is torn over your sin. And that's hard for the church to hear. It's hard for us to go, man, it rests on this room. What if God's movement in Fayette County rested on this room confessing sin and getting it right? Are we willing to do it? Or are we just going to sit here and when I say amen and Brother Ken tells us it's time to go, we walk out the door and go, well, it's their fault anyway. Somebody has to get up and go, it's, it starts here. There's something about the repenting. David recognized it. And whenever what Joel is saying in our repentance, because he says, God, it's not all of my words, it's my heart toward what I've done to you that, that changes things. And we know that in this restoration, restoration takes place. We know it can take place, and we know that God will turn back. So I love about him. If you go back to the garden and you go back to the sin of Adam and Eve, and I blamed it on both of them, God didn't turn away from them and run. God turned to them and ran toward them. Because even in Genesis 3, we see that he has a plan to reconcile us back to himself. God doesn't run from your sin. God's not against you. He loves you and he's merciful toward us. That's why the Bible says that his kindness is what leads us to repentance. And so God is waiting on us to come and confess so he can lavish his grace and his mercy on us. And bring us back into a place of rejoicing. And then ultimately there's the power of prayer. I love what verse 10 says. Now, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He says, Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He says, Your people who you have redeemed. There's power in us praying. C.T. Studd said it this way, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of the omnipotent. Just a little bit can go a long ways. Just simply coming down with a humble and broken heart. His ear is open to our plea. We are told in Scripture that we have not because we ask not. And I do believe that God wants us to bring everything to Him. I talk to people often, it's like, Man, I, I just don't want to bother God. I'm like, really? You're bothering me? No, I'm just kidding. Just, just like, go to God. He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to bring it all to Him. And we're not wearing God out. We're, we're not. He's sitting there just going, man, I just wish they would come. I have so much uh, for them. And when we pray... And we turn it over to him. We are recognizing and declaring that he is in control. And do we really believe that he will? Because I believe all things are possible when it's lined up with his will and his holiness. 
And I believe that's the way you have to pray. God, I need you to move on this situation, but God, I want your will to be done based on your holiness and your glory. And being able to accept it. And I know Pastor Ken probably gets this question a lot. I get it quite often from people. It's like, why do we not see an outpouring of God like they did in the past? One, I want to tell you that God is still pouring it out. He is. But I do believe that we don't see some of the things that we saw even 100 years ago because of the lack of prayer corporately. This used to be a place where people would come, no matter the size of the building, but this altar was revered. And it was a place where men and women came and got down on their knees in front of everybody in what they used to say did business with God. Now it's a place that we don't come to because we believe if we come to it that we're in essence admitting that we've done something wrong. And we don't want all the eyes on us. I think we need to take that stigma, ball it up, and throw it in the garbage. Because there is something special about God's people coming to the altar and praying together. That'll never change. We can say, well, culture's changing. That will never change. God has designed corporate prayer for a purpose. So we should want to grab a hold to our family and go, man, let's go pray. Let's go ask God to save Fett County. Let's go ask God to bless our Sunday nights. Let's go ask God, what can we do to be involved? God, we want your power poured out on this place. I think we need to. I believe it would be very amazing to see God's people gathered at the altar going, God, it starts here, and we confess the sins of our nation. God, we confess the sins of the church. Lord, start with us. Are we just going to demand that God make change and us never do a thing? So there is, a, there is a, something about coming together and praying together. It's the greatest privilege and the greatest tool that we have and the one we use the least. And scripture is a reminder of what he can do. And even in our own lives, we all have testimonies of praying for something and God moving. I don't know where you stand on healing, but I still believe that you can pray and God will heal. I believe that God will deliver if we get on our knees and we pray. I believe that God will still bring families together. I believe that God will still save an old lost person. I believe that when God's people pray. How do I believe it? Not because I read it. Not because I had to write a paper on it. Because I've seen it with my own eyes. And your testimony is the greatest thing that you can use when it comes to praying and what it means. Here's the question, and then I'm getting ready to close. Do we believe that God will do more than we can think or imagine? Do we really believe that, church? Do we really believe that if we really set our hearts in prayer together for what God wants to do in Fayette County through Warren Community Church, that he will blow our minds? Or maybe it's that we don't want our minds blown. But I believe that he will. And I believe that he wants to. Or have we become so independent that we really don't need him anymore? God, I got this. <laughs> I don't want to bother you. I know you just spoke it and it came into existence. But this problem, I don't want to mess with you on it. 
No. Can I tell you something that not only are you dependent on him to move, you're dependent on him to breathe and everything. So we have to be dependent on him through prayer. But it starts with fervent prayer from his people. Personal prayer and public prayer. Right? Public prayer. God's people gathering at the altar... Crying out to God. Y'all know why we took the front of the stage off? It's to make it easier for you to bow. And for us to bow. Because Pastor Ken and I both still believe that this altar is relevant. And this is where things get done in the church. And you can disagree with me and that's fine. But it wouldn't be in the Bible about praying at an altar if it wasn't important. Are we willing to glory in His presence? And here's the thing. The goal of prayer is not to change God's mind about what you want. The goal of prayer is to change your heart to what He wants and glory in that. And in closing, when the band could come up, this is... I saw this this week, and I went and I told Brother Ken, I was like, man, this may be the most profound part of this passage to me. But between Nehemiah 1.1 and Nehemiah 2.1 is four months. Four months. Nehemiah heard. The Bible says that he sat down and wept and mourned. And that he prayed and fasted. And the timeline before he approached King Artaxerxes was four months. So this is what four months kind of means to me. It tells me don't give up. Don't stop praying for that need. Don't stop praying for that healing. Don't stop praying for deliverance. Don't stop praying for reconciliation. Don't stop praying for that wayward child. Don't stop praying for salvation. And don't stop praying for this great nation. If anything, pray more. Pray more consistently. Pray more with fervor. Pray with more expectation. Pray with more confidence. Pray with boldness. Just pray. Pray when you don't want to. Pray when you don't have words to. But on the left side, I say pray. In the middle, pray. And on the right hand, I just say pray. And I debated if I was going to say this at the last, but last week our senior pastor said crap, so I figured I could say this. <laughs> this is just a quote from Miss Clara. Pray until you get victory. And then you declare as she did in war Rome. Devil, you just got your butt kicked. My God is faithful, he's powerful, he's merciful, and he is in charge. You can't fire him, and he will never retire. Glory, praise the Lord. And I say, Warren, we just need to pray. So whatever it is today, pray. Come to the altar and pray. If you have a heart to see Fett County saved, bring it here. If you have a family member that's running away from God, bring it here. 
If your marriage is, is on the, the about destroy, bring it here. If you have a family member that is addicted to some, bring it here. Come to the altar. Pray for Warren Community Church. Gather and pray for your pastors. Pray for your staff. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your brothers and sisters in this room. Just come and pray. If we are not willing to pray, then I think it's wrong for us to ask God to move. So pray. It would be amazing to see this church on its knees, corporately in prayer, about what God wants and desires to do through this church. So my challenge to you today, and I encourage you, don't do it because I ask, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But there's something special about praying. There's something special about praying together. And today I challenge you, I encourage you, church, that on this Sunday, this Sunday of prayer, dedicate yourself to coming down here together and simply calling on God. And expecting him to do something more than we could ever think or imagine. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.